Bibles, please open to James chapter 3 this morning. James 3. We're looking at the first 12 verses of this, of this book. And if you don't have, if you have your Bibles there, please open them. And if you need a, uh, find a sermon outline helpful, there is one in the worship folder. Well, in the verses we're looking at this morning, James directs our attention to the words we speak. And I don't think he's limiting it, limiting, limiting it just to the, wor- the words that come out of our mouths, but he's also talking to us about the words that we write in emails, the words we fo- post on Facebook, or compose in the numerous texts that uh, we send out each day. And it's quite possible that James, during some occurrence, some, sun- some situation, whispered or witnessed the misunderstanding, the conflicts, that happen because we sometimes communicate, we sometimes speak before we understand the dynamics and the impact of our words. And sometimes even our healthy venting, when we think we're in a safe place and we're talking about a situation we've encountered or the hurt we've experienced or the frustration we've endured, sometimes those experiences can also not turn out the way we want them to turn out. In today's Christian magazine, Ramona Carter Tucker told of what happened to two women, Mary and Sharon, as they were having lunch in a restaurant. Here's her story. Before returning to work, they stopped in the restroom to fix their makeup, and their conversation turned to the subject of who drives them crazy. And immediately, Mary launched into a two-minute diatribe about Beth, a mutual coworker. And as Mary prepared to divulge more specifics about how Beth drove her crazy, a stall door opened, And who do you think stepped out? Out walked Beth, who was red-faced and angry. In a split second, what seemed like a pressure-relieving venting session turned into an awkward mess. Mary and Beth stared at each other in embarrassed panic. Mary knew that she couldn't take her words back. And when their eyes met, Beth fled out the door. That afternoon, Beth did not return to work. And the next day, Mary heard that through through the grapevine that Beth had resigned. While some staff members openly celebrated and cheered what seemed to be good news, Mary felt miserable because she knew why Beth had quit. Although the situation happened years ago, Mary never forgot it. She tried to reach Beth numerous times by phone. She wrote a letter of apology, but Beth never responded. And she said that she had learned her lesson about what can happen when we talk before understanding the possible ramifications of unthought out words. The impact of our words, the power of what can happen when we communicate something that is positive and good and uplifting and meaningful, as well as the, on the other side of the coin, the negative impact words can have when they're spoken without thought to the ramifications and how it can cause people to feel. Well, this morning in the passage we're looking at, I want to share with you James from the book of from this section in James, seven things that James believes God wants us to know about the words that we share. Number one, God wants to know that teaching carries with it great responsibility as well as accountability. In verse one of chapter three, James 
gets very specific. He says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, first of all, we need to remember that James himself was a teacher. He wrote the book of James to teach us what, what it means to practically serve God. The other thing that he also knew is that he, as he spoke at the church in Jerusalem, he also knew that his words there could have an impact to move the people forward. And it seems that in writing this, he was feeling the pressure of, his, of the weight of responsibility that he'd been given to teach correctly. Now on your, outline, on your outline are three different things a qualified teacher needs to do. Number one, a qualified teacher needs to know the Savior. And here we're talking about a correct commitment. It's not enough just to know what the Bible teaches. We have to know the God who teaches us. We need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's one thing to preach facts, but this is what happens. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and changes us and gives us the ability to interpret Scripture so that we understand it and communicate it clearly. That leads us to number two. A qualified teacher needs to comprehend the truth. Correct understanding. We are to be committed to know and to teach God's truth. If God's truth is convicting, we need to teach it plainly. If God's truth is comforting, we don't make it harsh. If God's truth is clear, we don't complicate it. And again, in speaking of the Holy Spirit, we need to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal it to us so that we can understand what it means, not just in fact, but to understand what it means practically, how this passage will change our life. How will it affect our situation? How will, it, how it will help us be the people God wants us to be? And the third thing with that individual who wants to teach, that, that what that individual needs to know, is they need to know how to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. And here we're talking about correct application. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. It's our counselor. The Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds and convicts our hearts. And as a teacher, a preacher, a teacher in any setting, whether it be a Sunday school lesson or to a group of individuals you're wanting to share God's word with, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to help, again, us make application. Now, here's what happens. When, whenever you come to church here on Sunday morning, and the pastor has prepared, and the pastor has done so, saying, God, would you guide my preparation? Would you help me say the things that need to be said? If you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in your life. And the Holy Spirit takes the truth that is spoken from God's Word and applies it to your life, to your situation. This applies to this relationship. It applies to this problem. It applies to this, this situation in your life. So the Word of God does not become something that's just stuck in your head, but it becomes something that is applied to your life. See, it's one thing to know a fact. We can know a fact and be totally misunder misunderstand what that fact means. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of it, the Holy Spirit takes the fact and makes application to our life. Let me give you an example. There was a conference, a conference in France some years ago where a number of, engineer, of international engineers were present, including engineers from France and from the United States. And during a break, one of the French engineers came back into the room where the group was meeting, and he said this, have you heard about the latest dumb thing President Bush has done? He sent an aircraft carrier to Indonesia to help the tsunami victims. And then he continued by saying, what do you think he wants to do, bomb them? Well, there, there was a Boeing engineer from the United States there, and he stood and quietly replied, our carriers have three hospitals, 
on board that can treat several hundred people. They are nuclear powered and can provide emergency electrical power to shore facilities. They have three cafeterias with the capacity to feed 3,000 people each day. They can produce several thousand gallons of fresh water from seawater, and they carry half a dozen helicopters for use in transporting victims to the hospitals on board. And then he continued by saying, the United States has 11 such ships. How many does France have? See, an individual took one fact, didn't understand it, and had a misconception and made a statement that ultimately was embarrassing. What the Holy Spirit does, friends, it takes God's word, applies it to our life, so that when we go, we live and we apply with understanding, and this is it. Our lives are changed, and the lives of those around us are changed. The second thing that God wants us to know about our words is that we all sin in various ways. Part two, the last part says, for we all stumble in many ways. The word stumble refers to sin and to in response to any moral failure, a failure to be able to do what is right. Now, when a person stumbles, they usually stumble forward. So we're, James is talking about people who are committed to Jesus, who are committed to following him, but yet are still dealing with the tendency and the reality of their sinful nature. So they're still following, they're still falling, they're still stumbling, they're still sinning, and James seems to be telling us this. He says, understand that we're all on the same page. Understand we're all dealing with the same problem, the problem of sin. So whenever you relate, whenever you teach, whenever you communicate, whatever you say, whatever you do, understand that everyone that you're working with, everyone that you're sharing Christ with, the people that you're living with, the people that you're growing in relationship with who are also Christians are also other sinners who need humility and grace and kindness. Number three, God wants us to know that godly words are an indication of spiritual maturity. The last part of verse 2 says this, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, what is James telling us here? What he's doing, he's saying, I want you to know what you need to aim for. You need to aim for spiritual maturity. Now, when he uses the word perfect, he's not talking about being sinless, but he's identifying a person who has grown in his relationship with Jesus to the point that it is obvious to people that observe him. He has been able to achieve an understanding of Scripture, an application of Scripture. He has learned from his mistakes. He's learned from his successes. He understands his dependence upon God, and it is obvious that God is growing him. And, he, and one of the things James is saying, he says, if you are able to not stumble in what you say, in other words, the words that come out of your mouth will give evidence that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus. Colossians 4, 6 illustrates and continues this thought when it said, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, here again is a person who has grown in his relationship with God, is able to pass on what he has learned through meditation on God's Word and what he has learned from his own life experiences. Friends, the Bible is clear that we grow in our relationship with God. What we say will give evidence of the growth. How we talk to people, how we're sensitive to people, how we listen before we speak, how we care, how our words are intended not to be cutting down, but to find a way to lift a person up and to insert some information, some knowledge, some compassion, some understanding that will spur that person on to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Number four, God wants us to know that my words have great influence and impact. Verses 3 to 5. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, 
We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member yet boasts of, of great things. Now here James gives, uses two common objects, objects that we understand to make a point. He talks about the bridle that's put in the mouth of a horse. He talks about the rudder that's positioned at the back of the ship. And he says that even though the bed is small in comparison to the size of the horse, even though the rudder is small in comparison to the size of the ship, that, that this object, that the bed and the rudder have tremendous influence concerning the destination of each of those things. And he is saying, understand that your tongue, the words that you speak, Set, can set the direction from your for your mouth, for your life, for the influence you have, for the joy you bring, for the encouragement you bring, or for the hurt that is caused. In Proverbs 15, 14, we read, gentle words are a tree of life, a deceitful tongue crushes a spirit. Proverbs 18, 21 says, a tongue can bring death or life. Proverbs 12, 18, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Isn't that something that our words, if you're wise, one of the things that happens is that you heal people. Your words are a salve on their hearts. Your words are an encouragement that lift them out of maybe a doldrum. But you are to, we are to be wise, and we are to bring healing to people's lives. And we look at that, and we compare it to this. How easy is it to be rude or sarcastic or cutting or disrespectful or insensitive with what we say? And the writer of Proverbs encourage us to speak words that bring healing. And you know what that often means, friends? It means for me that I need to slow down before I speak. I need to step away from a situation in order to speak what is going to be helpful. Anyone can be mean, anyone can be rude, but the one who wants to understand is given value. I think I've mentioned this before, but Joy and I many years ago went to the Naramore Christian Foundation, and they had a slogan, and they said, every person is worth understanding. And friends, when we just look at someone objectively and we don't know their backstory, we can make a lot of comments that don't make sense. But if we take the time to understand, our understanding can lead to sharing words of encouragement and words of hope. The fifth thing God wants us to know is that my words can cause a lot of trouble. Anybody ever find that to be true? Our words can cause a lot of trouble. Verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The damage done by unkind words, lies, gossip, rudeness, innuendo can hurt the person who is being talked about as well as the person who is doing the talking. See, sometimes what God allows, he allows us to experience the effect of our words and have those words at times come back on us. The story is told about a lady by the name of Mildred. And Mildred was a church attender and she had a problem with gossip. Now to gossip is to talk about other people not really knowing their life situation and drawing conclusions from what we observe but really don't know. And more often than not when we gossip the words we speak and the things we say are hurtful not helpful to the person that we're talking about. Well, the other church member knew, members knew that Mildred had a problem with gossip, but they were, uh, they were afraid of her, so nobody, nobody did anything, even though they knew what she, what she was doing was wrong. Now, this went on until the day that she accused Frank, an older gentleman, of being an alcoholic. Now, why did she think Frank was an alcoholic? Because one afternoon, she saw his pickup truck parked in front of the town's only bar. Well, she made it a point 
to tell Frank and others what she thought, that he was an alcoholic. Well, Frank was a quiet man. He stared at her for a few moments, then just turned and walked away. He didn't explain, he didn't defend himself, he didn't deny that what she said wasn't true. But Frank did do something. Later that evening, Frank quietly parked his pickup truck in front of Mildred's home and walked home and left it there all night. <laughs> he made a point, didn't he? And the thing we need to realize is that we are accountable for the words that come out of our mouths. We are accountable for the things we post on Facebook, the tweets we make, the emails we send. And we are to do as we talked earlier, to be wise and say, God, would you help my words be words of healing? In this passage that we just read, James compares the tongue to a fire that does great damage. In 2017, there were 71,449 wildfires that destroyed over 10 million acres of land. Worldwide, 339 people were killed by wildfires. And in the United States, studies have shown that 9 out of 10 wildfires were began by humans, by people. It's not surprising that James would compare the destruction that can come through our words by a wildfire. Because one of the things that make a wildfire so dangerous is that the direction can change any minute based on the wind. And what happens when you or I say something and it goes from one person to another person to another person, every person can take that and add to it, subtract to it, and distort the truth. And even through innuendo, ruin the reputation of somebody that earlier we were told that we are to love. James says we are to be careful that our words are spoken in a way that honor him. Psalms 141.3 says, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And you know what I have found? I need to be very care careful to speak less, not more. I need to be in to slow down and not let every thought that I have be expressed through my writing or words. The Bible says that we are to take thought, every, take captive every thought in our mind before we allow it to be truth or before we allow it to be something that we express. Number six, God wants us to know that on my own, I cannot control my tongue. See, sometimes we live in a society of self-help, and we just say, I can get this. And often what that's saying is, I am not willing to be humble enough to ask for help in order to conquer the things I need to conquer. Listen to verse 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And then James says this, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. What a statement. Now, James is making the point that as human beings, we can tame every kind of animal. We can tra train a two-ton horse to, be, to respond to a one-half-pound bit. We can train dogs to jump through hoops and lions to jump through fire, birds to deliver mail and canaries to talk, but we cannot control the words that come out of our mouths. Now, what does the word tame mean? The word tame means to subdue or gain control over. The word tame also means to restrain within proper limits. How good are we at subduing our mouths before it speaks? And, and this is it. Not only not to speak something that is unhelpful, but to subdue and to control so that we can say something that is encouraging. My mentor told me time after time, before he passed away, he said, Barry, every opportunity, every challenge, every problem you have, if you take it as a challenge, you can find a possibility in it. 
And every word we speak can be a possibility that God can use. It's like in the morning we should pray, God, today you've given me, you're going to give me situations where I can talk. And Lord, would you help the words of my mouth be such that it leads to encouraging and lifting people up? May my words give a reflection that my relationship with you is important to me. And again, friends, often what it means is for us to slow down and simply think before we speak. To tame again means to subdue or restrain within proper limits. And when this doesn't happen, people get into trouble. You might have read this week about the chairman of the board of a popular pizza franchise that resigned because of a racial slur that came out of his mouth. That's why marriages break up or are weak, why partnerships fail and friendships dissolve, because we refuse to believe we need help. We refuse to humble ourselves and say, help me. And the first place we go is we have to come to our Heavenly Father and say, God, I need your help. I need your direction. I need your intervention in my life, and I willingly submit to the changes I need to meet to make in my life. Now, why, does, why, do, why do we come to God? Friends, we can make exterior changes that give the appearance of change, but you know what God does? God makes inner change at the core of our being that actually changes who we are. Zig Ziglar, a motivational speaker who passed away some years ago, was giving a, after he completed a talk at a major corporation, was asked to um, recommend somebody for the next year. Well, he recommended a man, and the corporation contacted this other speaker and said, would you send us some of your CDs, some of your examples of what your speeches are like? So the man sent to the corporation some of his CDs, and then the man at the corporation who was responsible to find a speaker called him back and said, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but we're not going to be able to have you come and speak. And he asked why. And they said, well, in your presentation, you used some questionable stories and language. And the man immediately said, well, I could take them out. And then the man who called him made this statement. He said, actually, we were looking for someone who wouldn't use them in the first place. See, friends, our character is a true definition of who we are. And what God does is he changes our character. He changes the hearts, he changes the core of our beings, and he says when he does that, in changing our hearts, it will change what comes out of our mouth, it will change the words that we post and the emails that we write. In the book of Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah deals with the reality of his own problem with having unclean lips. Let me read for you a section of that chapter. Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending them were a mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it is all over. I am doomed, for I am an un a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphims flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And he touched my lips and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here am I, send me. 
What happened? Isaiah was confronted with God. He understood the problem. He was a man of unclean lips, and he submitted to God. What did God do? He began to heal his heart. Symbolically, he touched his lips with a coal, symbolizing the interchange of God. And it's interesting that verse 8 says that after he had had his lips purified, then he was put in a position where he was ready to serve. God wants to use us. He wants to purify our hearts so that the words we speak will be words that represent him, accomplish his purpose, and build up the people he's called us to love. Number seven, God wants me to know that my heart can be divided. Verses nine to 12, with it, our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salty water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grape a grapefruit produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. These words describe two ways of life. One where we bless God, and the other where we curse people that we are supposed to love, we're supposed to care for. And James makes a simple statement. He says this isn't the way that it should be. In Paul and Paul in Philippians 3 says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to profess, possess that perfection for which Christ has first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ is calling us. What is he saying? He's saying we need to know what we're about. He says we need to know what our goal is. We need to know what the objective of our life actually is so that we can pursue it with all that we are. We are wise friends to take the time to determine what we're living for. Are we living for comfort, security, for fame? Because what we're living for will determine the sacrifices we're willing to make and how hard we'll run to achieve that goal. A certain dog always boasted about being a great runner, and then one day a rabbit he was chasing got away. Well, the other dogs ridiculed him mercifully because they had heard all his boasting about how good a runner he was, and this is what the dog did to explain why the rabbit got away. He says, you must remember, he said, that the rabbit was running for his life while I was only running for a snack. See, friends, what is it that motivates us? What is it that motivates you? What are the fears in your life? The fears in your life are the things that will often motivate what you give yourself for. If you're afraid of financial instability, you will try to achieve that. If you're afraid or thinking you're not good enough, you will try to do things that prove that you are. And God says that we're supposed to deal with our fears so that we can settle the fears and pursue him alone. Our lives and the direction of our lives can make a difference. One man can make a difference. One word can change the world. One deed can move a mountain. One thought can change your mood. Be the one that changes. Be the one who moves. Let nothing stand between you. Be the one who proves that with God all things are possible. With him nothing is in the way. Give yourself completely. Give yourself to him today. Final observations and an application. Observation number one. My words have great impact and influence. Never doubt the power of your words to lift up, to direct, or to destroy. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful. He didn't say let some of the things you say. 
He said, let everything you say be good and helpful. Now, this is it. Friends, it might seem to you that it's good and helpful. The key is not does it seem good to you and it's good and helpful. Do the other person hear it as being good and helpful to them? Number two, my words are a reflection of who I am. Matthew 12, 34 says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words are often an indicator of what's inside us. We need to change our heart. We need to change, ask God to change our lives, and our words will reflect God. And number three, seek God, and my words will reflect him. Sometimes when we think about seeking God and committing ourselves to him, what comes to our mind is all the things we have to give up or the things we have to change that we're not convinced that we want to change. Let me put a twist on this. Let me look at this, let's look at this from a different perspective this morning. God is all about giving. He gave his life. God gave all of us that we could handle, that we could absorb. He initiated love. He took the first step of reconciling himself to us. And what God wants us to do, he wants us to position ourselves so that we can receive from him all that he has for us. See, you and I determine by how we live how much we receive from God. If we obey him, if we seek him, if we put him first, we will put ourselves in a position, and, and, and if we humble ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable, humility is crucial for receiving from God. Vulnerability is crucial for receiving to God. But when we position ourselves in such a way that God can fill into us, God is going to fill in. He is going to change our life. And why? Because God's capacity to give is greater than we will understand ever understand. There was a little girl who went with her mom to a country store, and after her mom bought everything that she needed, the clerk that was waiting on them turned to the little girl that was, that was with her mom and said, there's a big tub of candy, go ahead and help yourself. Well, the little girl hesitated, and the clerk looked at her and said, well, don't you like candy? And the little girl said, absolutely, nodded, and in a way of saying, yes, I like candy. Well, then the clerk smiled, and he reached his hand in, and he pulled out and poured a generous amount of candy into the little girl's hand. The little girl said, I th said, thank you. And later the mom asked and tried to explain what was going on. And she asked, why didn't you reach in and take the candy when you were first given the opportunity? And the little girl paused and with wisdom said, well, mom, his hand is bigger than mine. <laughs> and you know, friends, God is bigger than we are. And he wants to give to us in ways that we can never understand. So when you think about seeking God, think not about what you might have to give up. Think about what you will receive. Because I have found that when I seek God, that God begins doing things in my life that can only happen because I'm putting him first. In First Chronicles, it says, if we seek him, we will find him if we seek him with all our heart. In other words, the degree of our seeking determines the degree of our finding. The degree of what we receive from God determines on us putting us ourselves in a place where we can receive. Friends, what is your greatest need today? What do you need God to do for you? What do you need God to change? What do you need God to fill in your life? Because God is wanting to fill your life. He, is your as your creator, knows exactly what it is you need. And he's waiting for us to put ourselves in a position where we can receive that. Please stand with me as we share in a benediction this morning. Father God, we pause today to give you thanks for all that you have done. And forgive us, Father, for when we are hesitant to commit ourselves to you because we are 
unsure if we're willing to make the compromise, if we're willing to make the change, if we're willing to let you do what needs to be done to give you what you've asked us to give. And Father, help us to remember that, that you being the same God who sent his son to die will give us all good things. And that in the hard times of life, you will teach us. In the difficult times of life, you will mature us. In the good times of life, you will remind us that you are a good and loving God. So in all things, Father, might we seek you and might we put ourselves in a position where we can receive from you what you have for us. That as we receive from you, we will understand and experience in a new way your reality. Change us, shape us, mold us, Father, today. We give ourselves to you and we ask it this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.